morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad that you guys are here, and welcome to whoever's watching on the live stream. I'm glad that you're with us as well. A couple things real quick. Make sure you fill out the attendance books, which are down at the end of your row, and then uh, sign those and pass those on to the people next to you. Uh, again, there's a QR code in there if you want to do your attendance online. Also, a QR code if you want to uh, give online this morning as well. Um, everything's on schedule for this week that's in the bulletin there. We've got youth confirmation right after uh, church today. Uh, parents, pick your kids up at 1245. New members class tonight, 6 to 730 p.m. Uh, whoever wants to is free to show up to that. Uh, men's Bible study Wednesday morning. Uh, make sure that uh, you've got the first chapter ready to go. We're doing the first chapter this week. I have two extra books for the men's Bible study. If there are two guys out there that are interested in getting together with a group of us at 6.30 in the morning on Wednesday mornings and talking about God and his word and uh, keeping each other accountable and uh, praying uh, with each other, then uh, let me know. I can get you, uh, I've got two of those copies left. Youth group Tuesday evening, 6.30 to 8 o'clock p.m. If you have any questions about that, see Stacy Stocky. Um, and, uh, oh yeah, I was going to give you an update. A uh, couple things here. One, I was going to give you an update. We took an offering for uh, Happy and Jack a couple weeks ago. And uh, Happy is leading a mission trip to Costa Rica. Is that right? And Jack's leading a mission trip to Hungary this summer. They both go to Palm Beach uh, International University. And... Uh, we, uh, uh, you guys, uh, gave $901 for that, which is really good, and uh, we bumped it up from the missions budget, $99 to 1000 and so we're going to give each of them uh, $500 for their mission trip, and, which is good, and then when they're back home um, in the summer, they can report back to us and, and let us know how, um, how that went. That's really exciting. Uh, one more thing, and then we'll get into worship. Uh, we're going to sing a new hymn this morning. It's new to, I, I, well, I, and it's not new to me, but I, I don't think that it's a, a hymn that Lutherans sing. It's called This Is My Father's World. It's the sermon hymn. And um, it's, uh, well, I just, if you don't know it, just listen to the musicians sing it uh, the first time, and then you can jump in. And it's got some really, really good uh, Revelation, Book of Revelation themes in there, which is why I've added it. Um, yeah, okay, that's good. Well, let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin uh, worship. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship Him. Worship His holy name. 
on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand years and then Continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Holy Holy, holy, you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness frightens us. It fills us with awe. It fills us with wonder. What else can we do but fall down before you and confess our woe? We are lost. We are a people of unclean lips and unclean thoughts. The light of your holiness only reveals the darkness of our sin. Holy, 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 you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness is white hot, converting our sin. Send your seraphim to us with burning coals from your altar, that our guilt be taken away and our sin forgiven. Holy, 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 you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness is frightening, all-consuming, Sanctify us to your service. Make us holy that we might be your people, that we might reflect your glory and serve you forever. In the name of Jesus we pray. Whoever stands before the altar of heaven, our mediator, who presents before your holy majesty our prayer and supplication now and evermore. Amen. Upon this your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we save by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Psalm 112, 1 through 9. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. 
He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He's distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to people of goodwill. We praise you, we bless you, we worship you, we glorify you, we give you thanks for your great glory. O Lord God, King of heaven, Father Almighty, Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Son, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, you take away the sins of the world. Receive our prayer and have mercy on us. For you alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone, Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, are most high in the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is Isaiah 58, uh, verses 3 through 9a. Uh, one of the points of this uh, text, you'll see when we get in here, is that true religion is not just a matter of theological accuracy. It's not just a matter of faithful worship practices. True religion is very much tied up with acts of mercy to the poor. Why have we fasted and you see it not? This is a praying to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, this is God responding to them, Behold, in the day of your religious observance, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? A more religious observance. Will you call this a fast in a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. This is the word of the Lord. Epistle reading, Revelations 8, 6 through 10, the end of chapter 10. It's a long one, of course, uh, abiding off another big chunk. You'll remember last time we had the seven seals. The seventh seal, when it was opened, introduced angels with seven trumpets. This week, uh, we're going to look at the seven trumpets, or, or to be more accurate, we're going to look at the six trumpets, and we're going to save the seventh trumpet for next week. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. 
The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. 
and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 5. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated.
Revelation reading, if you could turn in your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 8, and we're going to look at the first six of the seven trumpets. Uh, if you are uh, paying attention here as we were, uh, as we were reading, uh, it was, I was reading out loud, you'll notice that the seven trumpets, uh, they, they, they look an awful lot like the seven seals. The seals are opened and there's lots of judgment. The trumpets are blown and there's lots of judgment, very similar. The, the seals... With the seals, the judgment is uh, primarily man-made, man-made judgments, right? It's uh, the conquering kings, uh, forces, political, geopolitical forces fighting against each other. There's uh, hyperinflation, which is a result of war. There's, uh, uh, um, uh, what else did we have in there? We had uh, death. That was the rider on the pale horse. This one is a little bit different. This is more natural disasters. Uh, natural, uh, as, if they're, as if you could distinguish natural and supernatural in the Bible. But it's still, they're very similar. And it, let me make this point to you real quick here. Um, you know, I grew up with the chart makers, the, the, the guys who would read the book of Revelation and then write the charts. And one of the problems with the charts about the book of Revelation is that they don't understand the way the literature is working here. If what, what they think is that you can start at the beginning of Revelation, and then it kind of tells this linear story throughout. But, and I tried to mention this early, as we've gone on here. Revelation doesn't do that. Revelation constantly cycles back on itself. So chapters 2 and 3 of the church in Asia Minor is the same as chapters 4 and 5. The church, it's happening at the same time as the church that's worshiping around the throne of God in glory. And all of these, uh, all of these, Things that we see with the, with the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, they're not happening in order. They're happening simultaneously. And the best way to think of the book of Revelation, I think, is this. Now, we're not used to this because most of us, when we think of like, you, you read a newspaper article 
or uh, uh, you know, uh, a story about the Civil War. It starts at the beginning and it moves through to the end, and that's the way we think of um, communication. When you, when you write a, a, you know, a term paper in college, you have an introduction, and then you have points one, two, and three, and then you have a conclusion, and that's what we do. We move either chronologically from a beginning to an end, or we move logically from premise uh, to, to, to a sort of a, a, a logical result. Revelation does not work like that. Revelation works more like the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah. It, it, it turns back in on itself all the time. It's more, it's less like a term paper and more like a symphony. There's a theme, and the theme gets played. And then a second theme gets played. And then there's a return to the first theme. And then there's an echo of the second theme, but a couple of additional minor themes. And then it goes back to the second theme in full, and then back to the first theme in full, and it plays back over and over on itself. Revelation is like that. It's not telling us a story of what happens in chronological order. It's telling us what happens between Jesus' first coming and second coming, and it does that in a way that just kind of repeats itself and adds different layers and different elements. I'm talking about this in community group, my community group on Wednesday night, and Chuck Rather had a good analogy. Uh, he was talking about how it stacks up on it, that, that these chapters stack up on themselves. Instead of laying them out like in a row where you can kind of look at them from beginning to end, they stack more you know, like, like a building with stories in a building or like you're building yourself a sandwich. And it all kind of goes together. And that's the best way to think about Revelation. So when we come here to the trumpets today, it's not something that's new or different time-wise. These are things that have happened from the beginning all the way to the end. Jesus is showing us things that have been in the past, in the present, and in the future, just like with the seals. All right, the second thing that you probably noticed, I'm guessing, if you're paying attention, it's a big if, right? It's a long reading. If you were noticing that the trumpets and what happens when the trumpets are blown sounds an awful lot like the plagues of Exodus, right? That's, that's intentional. That's what's going on here. I mentioned this earlier, uh, actually about three, four or five weeks ago. When you see locusts that we read about here, these are the famous locusts that I was telling you about. When I was a kid, these locusts were Apache helicopters. You know, the, the women had long hair. That was the rotor blades. They had the long hair of a woman, you know, and a breastplate of iron and fire coming, whatever it is. Uh, that's probably not what's going on. What's going on is, is that in this vision, John is seeing the plagues reenacted now, okay? So you have hail, you have water turned to blood. This is one of the, uh, that's, the second, that's the second trumpet that's in the book. You have water turned bitter. That's not so much the plagues of the Exodus, but that's something that happens right after that in the wilderness. You have the sun being darkened, which is a, pl a plague of the Exodus. You have locusts, the, you know, the, the Apache helicopters. Uh, that's also in Exodus. These locusts, though, are different. I, I'm gonna try to be as big picture as I can today for the sake of clarity and time. I don't wanna to get too much in the details, but you will notice that these locusts here are, they don't eat vegetation. They're, in fact, they're told don't eat the vegetation. They eat humans. They eat humans. So, so that, that, the part about the locust is a long one and is intentionally horror filmish. It's very, very dramatic, the, the, the abyss. The, it's almost like a black hole, non-matter. And out of this abyss, led by Apollyon, comes these locusts who are gonna to torment humankind. And then the sixth, uh, the, the, the sixth trumpet is foreign invasion. Again, I don't want to spend too much time on this. 
the four angels that are bringing the foreign invasion are lined up at the river Euphrates. The river Euphrates, not only is it the northern boundary of Israel in the Old Testament, it happens to be the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire at the time that this was written as well. These armies coming out of the north is the fear of every good Judean or Israelite from way back when. If Babylon or Assyria was going to attack you, it was going to be out of the north. They couldn't come through the Arabian desert. They would swing north and come down the Levant. And so any attacks out of the north, it's not, again, when I was a kid, uh, for those who have ears, uh, let them hear. This was Russia. Russia was north of Israel, so all the stuff in Revelation and Ezekiel about armies from the north was about Russia. Uh, Nobody said that for a long time, and I guess maybe, I, I haven't listened to any sermons by any dispensationalists lately, but maybe they're back on the Russia kick the past couple of years. It's not Russia, it's, it's Assyria and Babylon as emblems of foreign armies coming and crashing through, which you and I don't hardly feel that. I know I don't. I live right in the middle of this huge country with the most powerful military in the history of the world. I don't hardly ever worry about foreign armies. Most people throughout human history, this is a major fear. I'm gonna plant my crops this year and are, am I gonna get to harvest them or is some foreign army gonna come through and steal them? I'm gonna get married and have kids. Is some foreign army gonna come through and kill us all? That's a, that's a major fear. And it shows up here in this sixth trumpet as well. Okay, three things I wanna mention about these trumpets as quickly as I, as, as I possibly can. One, the first is a question. Why is God attacking his creation? You know, he's been emphasized throughout Revelation that God is the creator of everything. This is one of the reasons why uh, the, the lamb is worthy to be praised is because he's created everything back in uh, um, Revelation chapter five. But now we see God having these angels blow trumpets, which results in the destruction of the created world. Does God hate his creation? No. And I said something like this last week. I'm going to say it again. When I, when I was a kid, I, I, you, you, like all kids, you know, you're playing around, you're messing around outside. You get splinters in your hands. I would get splinters in my fingers. And I would show my mom, I would usually kind of like hold on to it till it got kind of red and puffy. And then I would show it to my mom and my mom would do the thing that all good moms in the 1980s would do. She would take a needle and she would heat it up, sterilize it, and then she would dig around inside my finger. And she would have to dig down in there and pull back all the skin around the splinter. And then she would take tweezers and dig down in there and pull it out. And she would tell me, I have to get the whole thing. If, I don't, if, if, if there's part of it that's stuck in there, I could probably pull the tip of it off and it would just break off. But if there's part of it that's stuck in there, it, it, it might get, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Infected, that's it. And so I have to get all of it out of there. And as a result, what she would end up doing was be digging around in my flesh for a while. Definitely painful, but it had to be done. Does God hate his creation? No more than my mom hated my finger. But what has to be dug out is evil. And all of it has to be dug out if God's going to come and live with his people. He's determined to dig all of it out. And so what happens is painful. It's painful. But that's the way judgment goes. Judgment for, 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 from God is, 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 is not punishment just to vent his anger. He's not blowing off steam and killing people and blowing up trees and plants and throwing mountains into seas because he's angry and he's like going to flex his muscles. His goal is to purify his creation. Remember, what's the point of the plagues in the Exodus? Well, there's, uh, there's other things going on here. But one of the key points is this, is to take his people out so that he can come and live with them. God wants to live with us. And for him to come and live with us, major surgery has to be done on the, on, on the patient. 
There's a huge splinter called evil buried down deep in each side of each one of us, and it has to be dug out. For those of you who've read uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you know there's a character in there who's a little kid, very, very greedy. He's greedy, so greedy that he turns into a dragon. Not a true story, it's fiction. He turns into a dragon, and for him to come back to being a boy, he repents, but in order to become a boy, Aslan has to come and with his claws scrape off levels and levels of dragon flesh to get to the boy in the middle. And the kid cries out with pain because it's miserable. Does Aslan hate the little boy? No. Does my mom hate my finger? No. This is what happens when evil gets embedded deep down inside of us like it is. God's gonna do surgery because he loves us and because he wants to make it right because he wants to come and live with us. Second thing, the plagues are a way, the plagues back in the Old Testament are a way of Israel's God triumphing over the fake gods. Israel's God flexes his muscles and says, all those gods that you worship, they're worth nothing. You worship the sun God, I can put the sun God out. You worship Kanum, the Nile God, I can turn the Nile, to blood, uh, the, the Nile to blood so it's useless to you. I am the one true God. That's what's going on here as well. God is showing the world that he is the strongest God that he is completely in control. And just like the Egyptians, you know, what gods got, what gods was Yahweh battling against? I mean, so they, they had idols and temples and stuff. But really, it was the gods of economic comfort. That's what the Nile was. It wasn't just this, the main point of the Nile was not this spooky river god you worship. The main point of the Nile was that it makes us all a bunch of money. The Nile floods every year and grows our crops and that's how we sustain our economy. Uh, same thing with the sun god. Uh, same thing with all, all, the, all different kinds of their natural gods, as they were a part of the things that made them comfortable. Same thing with the, with, with the ancient gods of sexual immorality. And what God does is he judges all of these things. He takes them away. Or here, here in the story, uh, he takes a third of them away, which is not meant to be taken literally. It's just God's dealing a blow to the gods of the world. He's not completely destroying everything, but he's dealing a blow, sending a message that I'm the one true God and these gods aren't. Sex will not make you happy. Sex will not save you. Money will not make you happy. It won't save you. Accomplishments, whatever it is, our God is the only God that can save us. And sometimes he sits in judgment on these things when we turn them into gods just to show us I'm God and they're not. They can't bear the weight that you're putting on them. I'm God and they're not. Third, the plagues are designed this kind of flows out of all this. The plagues are designed to call us to repentance. We know that's what the plagues are doing here because we know that's what, God's, uh, that's what God was trying to do uh, with Pharaoh. Uh, repent, and, and God said over and over, I'm doing these plagues to show you my glory, Pharaoh. We also know that, the, the, that these are designed uh, for repentance because at the end of the six uh, trumpets in these plagues here, uh, verse 20 of chapter nine, which is the, uh, if, you're, if you're looking at the bulletin, it's, the, it's at the very top of the last page of the reading. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The point of the plagues is to call us to repentance. God wants us to repent. The plagues, not just happening in Egypt, not just happening in some spooky story that's a metaphor for, like I'm talking about Revelation, it's a metaphor for the way God deals with. God does plagues now. He does plagues now. Now I have to be careful here 
because I don't want anybody in here to, to, to think I'm, I'm sounding like a, a, you know, a crackpot street preacher or something like this. But God sends plagues on this world, and the point of the plagues is that you and I repent, right? COVID was a plague, a literal plague on the world. And if we as Christians didn't look at COVID and say, Aaron Miller, you need to repent of your sin, we missed the point. If we stripped it down with all of our philosophical materialistic wisdom and said, oh, it's just a science thing. God, will you please like somehow come down and intervene maybe and you know, help the scientist out or like do something to get rid of whatever the science is going on here? And definitely there's lots of science involved in COVID too. I'm not saying that. that. But what I am saying is that God sends plagues to cause us to repent. The war, Russia fighting Ukraine. This is one of the other things that's happening. The trumpet is blowing, and armies are attacking other nations. And if I, here in the middle of the American Midwest, don't read the Wall Street Journal, a story about Russia attacking Ukraine, and say, Aaron Miller needs to repent of his sins, I am missing the point of that plague. It has its own, if I get sick, and I don't say Aaron Miller needs to repent, I'm missing the point. If you get sick, and I don't say Aaron Miller needs to repent, I'm missing the point. Why is this? Because all the evil that's out there in the world, it's actually, so, so we have a crisis in our culture. And the crisis is this. Let me say this the right way. We are all committed in our culture since the Enlightenment. For the past 300 years in the West, we have been committed to the principle that humans are essentially good. Humans are essentially good. We all kind of believe that. That bumps head with reality. It bumps head with the evening news or with what you know of your neighbors or, you know, what's happening over there. And there's different ways that we can deal with this as humans. Uh, and we, we all do this. Some of them are like big picture. Some of them, one of the things we do is we divide up into us versus them. And so you don't, have to, you don't have to listen to a whole lot of political rhetoric to know that both sides of the political spectrum think that the other side is the worst thing, and if they were just gone, everything would be good. And, and they both think that about each other, okay? Now, why is that? Because both sides are convinced that I'm good, I'm, they wouldn't use this language, I'm righteous, and the other side is, I don't know if they would use this language, I'm putting... Uh, religious language in this, to help, the, help the, uh, what's going on here. They're evil, and the righteous ones need to conquer the evil ones. In other words, you're creating an us that's good, that, that, that comports with what we believe as enlightenment modernists about humans, and then, but you have these other sort of like aberrant, uh, you know, there's sort of freaks over here who are evil and bad, and they need to be educated, and if they can't be educated, they need to be sterilized, we just need to get rid of them. That's the way we see reality because it's based upon the belief that I'm good. Are you guys familiar with the Sonderweg theory? Harry and I were just talking about this yesterday. After, after World War II, there was a theory that arose in academic circles called the Sonderweg theory. It just means it's German for special path. And, and what it was was a, a bunch of scholars, one of my favorite books is William Shire's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And his book is kind of built around this theory, the Sonderweg theory, that there was something about the Germans there was something inherent about them and their culture and their politics that necessarily led to the Holocaust. There was something about who they were. What's the point of that? The point of that is for us 
who are Americans or Italian scholars or British scholars or African scholars to look at the Germans and say, that ain't us, that's them. They're the evil ones. We're the righteous ones that, that tried to stop. Now, I've, I've told you before the story about Yehiel de Nur, who was a, a Jewish writer and kind of a, 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 a triple-A weirdo, to be honest with you. But he was called to, he was an Auschwitz survivor. He was called to testify at Adolf Eichmann's trial. And he started saying stuff which honestly didn't make a whole lot of sense. But he broke down and kind of passed out. And they took him out of there. And then he was interviewed by Mike Wallace several years later and asked, what was going through your mind when you were testifying at Adolf Eichmann's trial? And he said, I looked at Adolf Eichmann and I saw that he wasn't this demon god hovering above, uh, hovering above Auschwitz with, a, with a, a, a scythe mowing down people mysteriously. He was just a dude in a suit, sitting there. And Yildenor said, when I saw him, I thought, that's me. And I became scared of myself because I knew that that's me. This is all I'm saying here. I'm not saying that, you know, I, you know when the Great Flood happened in 1993, there were certain types of people who said, this is what happens when we allow riverboat gambling in the St. Louis area. God's gonna flood us. I'm not saying, I'm not drawing one-to-one connections. I'm saying this, is that the reason why Russia is attacking Ukraine is evil. The reason why COVID happens is evil. The reason why my grandmother passed away is evil. And all those things are sort of happening outside of me. I can, I can position those things as them things. I'm not Russian. I wouldn't do that. You know, you know I did my part to like help out with COVID. It's not me. But what's happening is, is if you trace the tendrils of evil from their most obvious manifestations up to genocide, up to, to, to mass pandemics, and you can trace those tendrils back I will find that some of those tendrils are in fact wrapped around my own heart. So that the sins that I commit, the resentments that I have towards people I should love, the lies that I tell in the interest of like just making things move smoothly, the greed that I have, the laziness that I have, the lust that I have is just as much responsible for COVID, is just as much responsible for deaths in Ukraine as evil tyrants. No man is an island, John Dunn says. When you look around, at what happens in the world, nobody can separate themselves out and say, I'm by myself. I'm not responsible for this. Don't ask for whom the bell tolls. When you hear the bell tolling in the village while you're out working in the field, and don't think to yourself, oh, the church bell's tolling. Somebody must have died. I wonder who died today. Don't think that. You know that the bell's tolling for you. When COVID happens, it happens because Aaron Miller is a sinner. When, when, when your deaths happen, it's because, I, and you too, I, I can't be responsible for you though, so in the sermon I'm talking about myself. When your deaths happen, it's because of me. It's because I've, I am complicit in the rebellion against God, which has introduced the kind of evil in the world that produces the plagues that happen when the angels blow the trumpets. I must repent. I must repent. There is no more us versus them. It is us. We are evil, sinful human beings who desperately need forgiveness, who desperately need being washed clean by the blood of Jesus. That's the crisis, and the only way to deal with it here is repentance. Now, what's the good news? Let's go to chapter 10. This actually is, like with the seals, there was like this uh, little uh, intermission in between the sixth and the seventh seal. We get something similar here. We get an intermission in between the sixth trumpet and then the seventh trumpet, which we'll look at next week starting in chapter 11. But in the intermission, you have grace, and you have this uh, weird angel here in chapter 10. I'm not going to read all this again because I want to hurry. 
who's straddling sea and land. He's like this cosmically powerful angel. And you'll see like, uh, you know, there's bad things happening in the sea, blood, bitterness. There's bad things happening on the land, locust, war, uh, devastation of plague. You'll see later on that there are beasts that are ruling over them. There are beasts that are coming up out of the sea. But here in chapter 10, you can see that there's a sovereign God whose messengers are actually more powerful than all of them. You have this angel who's straddling um, uh, sea and land. And what's happening in chapter 10 with this angel? Uh, what's happening is, is that in spite of the plagues, in spite of the devastation that racks the earth, both then, both now, both tomorrow until Jesus returns, God promises he will not give up on his creation. God promises that he will continue to speak. How does God continue to speak? He continues to speak through us. He continues to speak through his prophet John and through us. Okay, how does this work? John has, uh, again, a quick review here. Uh, the angel, one of the angels tells John, uh, go up to the big angel. He's got a little scroll in his hand. Actually, in Greek it says, it's the word for scroll, and then it's got two diminutives on the end of it. So it's like little, little scroll because it's got to be small enough for him to eat it, right? Go up to the angel, go up to the big angel, ask for the scroll, and when you get the scroll, I want you to eat the scroll. When you eat the scroll, it's going to taste sweet, but it's going to make your stomach hurt. What's going on there? What's the deal with that? This is a reference. It's a callback to Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, where God tells Ezekiel, the prophet, right at the beginning of his ministry, Here's a scroll. So again, it's in a vision. It's not literally, not, they're not literally eating vellum. Here's a scroll. Eat it. Now, what's going on here? He goes on to say to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 3, he says, So that all my words that I shall speak to you, you will receive in your heart. Here's the word of God it's a seal. What's the seal? Uh, what, what, what's the, I mean, what's, what's the scroll? Well, you already know. We read in chapter 5 the scroll is God's plan to judge sin to purify sin and to redeem the world. And he says to John, take this scroll and eat it. Why? Because God's plan, God's word, is meant to be imbibed down into the very depths of us. You're meant to eat it. It's, it's meant to become, you're meant to take it into yourself and absorb it into your DNA, absorb it into your biology, absorb it into your psychology, absorb it into your relationships. It's to become a part of you. This is not like a manual that you check whenever you kind of, you know, the VCR is broken, so you pull it out, like, what do I do to fix it? This is actually food to eat, not just to strengthen you, that's true, but so that you can be connected with the message of God so that you can preach it. This is what happens to John. He's told, he eats the scroll, sweet in his mouth, makes his stomach hurt. Very last line of our reading, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages as the king. The point is prophecy, you have to prophesy, you have to prophesy, John has to prophesy, me and you have to prophesy. How do you do that? You gotta eat the scroll. You gotta eat the scroll. Now, the point of the scroll is that God has called you to a mission. Your faith is not your private individual concern. God has given you Jesus Christ. He's given you his word. He's given you the sacraments so that you can have something to give other people. So you can have something to give. And if you don't, if you're a Christian and you have nothing to give other people, haven't been eating his word, then you're not really very good for the mission. Now, it's kind of harsh, I know. Jesus says this in the gospel reading. It's one of the places where the gospel reading, uh, striking, uh, striking sparks off of our uh, revelation reading. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how, it sh how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You and I, we're the salt of the earth. 
But if we've lost our saltiness, if we just look like the world, if we have sex like the world does, if we worship money like the world does, if we get our comfort where the world does, then are we really salt? We're kind of salt that's purposeless. What's the solution? Eat the scroll. Eat the scroll. God's called us to be on mission, to be prophets, to announce to the world that COVID is actually a call to repentance. Do you know how scary it is to say something like, if you say that out loud, you will be considered a freak. Okay, so don't start off by saying it out loud. Start off by being it. Start off by being the one who repents. Start off like when something bad happens, your first number one move is, God, forgive me of my sins and unite me to yourself afresh. Do that. Salt needs to be salty. We need to be prophets. Eat the scroll. That's a promise. It's not a warning. It's a promise. God is going to do this through it. God has promised to keep speaking through his people. What are we speaking, though? And I'm going to dip a little bit into um, next week's reading because, honestly, this is a little bit obscure here in chapter 10. Uh, if you look at verses 5 and 7 through chapter 10, you'll know that uh, what the angel is doing there. He's holding up this scroll, straddling sea and land. He's uh, in swearing, verse 6, by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. That's God, by the way. That there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servant, the prophet. That's what that angel's about. He's holding the scroll with God's plan, and he's saying, when the seventh trumpet sounds, everything will be revealed. And then he gives him the scroll. So we should ask, what is the seventh trumpet doing that's somehow connected with this scroll that he's eating and feeding on, which I, he doesn't say here because, of course, the seventh scroll happens in verse, the seventh trumpet happens in verse 11, chapter 11. But let me read a little bit to you, not the whole thing, but let me read a little bit to you now. This is verse 15 of chapter 11, if you're in your Bible. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, this is the seventh trumpet, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the message that we feed on, embody. It becomes a part of our DNA and our psychology, in our spirit, in our mouths. And then we are announcing to the world that the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is now the ruler of this world. Look, the, 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 um, um, the, the, the economic interests of this world are going to try to convince you that the king of this world is money. That if you do not sacrifice yourself for money and material things, you will not be saved. The, the, the kingdoms of this world are going to promise you that the, sev, the sexual revolution has now liberated you. You are free to do whatever you want. I mean, I know we have some bounds. We could, Everybody's got sort of rules in their head that kind of make them feel like I'm moral, you know. Consent is a big one. We should talk about consent sometimes and, 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 and the, the weakness of actually using consent as a standard. I mean, this isn't a Christian thing. It's just consent doesn't work as a way of protecting people from sexual shame. It just doesn't work. We have consent. We have other, other different things that we use, but it's a false king. It's not paid out. It's not actually made us happy. It's not actually made us less lonely. It's not actually made us fulfilled. And part of our job as to Christians is to say, yeah, we know that. We know that you're lonely. We know that you're not fulfilled. But we know who can do this. Because all these kingdoms that you've been chasing, that have been, that have been competing for your soul, are actually fake. There's one true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he became king because he sacrificed himself for you. 
Unlike the financial interests, which asks you to sacrifice yourself for them. Unlike the sexual revolution, which asks you to sacrifice yourself for it. Unlike the promises of this world's power, the political parties, which asks you to sacrifice yourself for it. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, who is and who was and is and is to come, has sacrificed himself on the cross for you, has risen from the dead, and can now make all things new, including you. Turn away from the false idols. See what Jesus has done for you. See what Jesus has promised you. Eat the scroll and taste how sweet it is. It is bitter too. Your stomach will hurt. Anybody who's a Christian out loud in our culture will know that there's a lot of stomach ache involved. But the promise is new creation, new creation in Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us. Father, help us, uh, give us repentance. Grant us repentance. Help us to be people who recognize the weakness and the, sinness, the, the sinfulness and the fallenness that's in our own souls. Take it away, Lord. Root it out. Cover it up with the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Allow us to be agents for your new creation. Allow us to be salt and light. Allow us to be people who have eaten the scroll. Allow us to be faithful prophets for you in our culture. Allow us to be faithful Christians. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
stand for prayer. Let's pray. God, thank you for being such a good God and for always loving us and even in the midst of uh, plagues, Father, for doing that to uh, discipline us as you, our loving Father, disciplines your children. And help us to be mindful of that and to be repentant, Lord, that to, to not be afraid but to trust you and uh, to, rest in the, to rest in your commitment to us, your covenant commitment to love us and to save us and rescue us. Father, help us to be people of the word. Help us to be people who have eaten the scroll. Help us to be a city set on a hill. May St. James be a light in the village of Glen Carbon. May we be the kind of people that, even if people in Glen Carbon uh, don't agree with what we believe about you and your Son and your Holy Spirit, that they know that they that they would that the village would have a hard time if we weren't here. Help us to be witnesses to your uh, truth and justice and love and mercy, both in word and deed. Help us to not be content with a religion like in the Old Testament reading. Help us not to be content with a religion that's just orthodox, that's just uh, right acting in 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 matters of worship, but help us to be people who care for the needy and for the poor. Help us to be people who give your love and your mercy and your hope to people who don't deserve it because we're people who don't deserve it. Fill us up on your love, Lord. Lord, and your mercy. Father, be with uh, the ministries of the church which you have called here and which you, we know you've chosen to bless and we thank, uh, we thank you for um, the vocation that you've given uh, all the different people here at, at their works and at their, at their work and at their homes and here at the church as well. And we thank you especially this week for the people who uh, take care of the money of the church for the, uh, uh, the, the financial team uh, led by John Graney. And we thank you for Elaine and all the work that she does and for Cheryl and the work that she does. And just bless them and uh, reward them for their faithfulness to you and um, bless uh, all of our ministries as well. And I want to pray for um, the missions that you've called us to. And thank you this morning for uh, Apple of His Eye Ministry and Pastor uh, Kevin and the, the work that he's doing uh, ministering your gospel there in Dogtown and U City to, um, to uh, the Jewish population there. And we pray that you would bless 
uh, his service, uh, the service there at Kaiva Shalom, and that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on them, and that your word and your gospel would be heard loud and clear, and that your Holy Spirit would open eyes and transform hearts. Allow us to partner with them uh, when we can, Father, and, and open those doors for us to support them, not just with money, but with uh, our deeds as well. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we thank you for being such a good God and for uh, hearing our prayers uh, when we know that we don't deserve it on our own merits, but we are worthy based upon your son, son's merits, and so we pray these prayers um, only under the auspices of his shed blood and only because of his great love for us and that he's made himself our brother and brought us into your throne room. And so, as always, we pray these prayers in the name of our brother and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and everlasting God, for the countless blessings you so freely bestow on us and all creation. Above all, we give thanks for your boundless love shown to us when you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into our flesh and laid on him our sin, giving him into death that we might not die eternally. Because he is now risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity, all who believe in him will overcome sin and death and will rise again to new life. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to you, O Lord in the highest. And now let's pray in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. 
And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Don't be content to leave here without building community. You'll be glad for it. Go in peace.